Good morning and welcome to Peninsula Bible Church Cupertino. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 29. I'll read the part of the people and the band will lead you, or sorry, I'll read the part of the leader, the band will lead you as part of the people. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. And altogether, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we know that all of creation sings of your glory and that one day every knee will bow before you and magnify your name. We long for the day when we will see you face to face and join the chorus of the saints, praising you for eternity. We pray that in the meantime, we would reflect your light to those around us at work, school, and home, that we would be your hands and feet in our communities, showing your love to those around us. Lord, we pray for those among us who are grieving. We pray for those who are ill or recovering. Comfort, be near them. We praise you that your Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We pray for those who are trying to make difficult decisions in their life. Give them wisdom and discernment. Make their next steps clear. We pray for our teachers, staff, and students as we return to school. We praise you that we can meet you back in person, or meet back in person. Allow our students to thrive academically, emotionally, and socially this year. Jesus, be with our missionaries who are scattered all over the earth. Each one has been placed into a specific community by you. Bless their work, encourage them, and send others to stand alongside them as they work for your kingdom. King of glory, we praise you that you were willing to come down and dwell among us, to take our place, bear the cross, and lay your life down that we might be set free. We know that it is entirely by your grace that you have made us your sons and daughters, and we are so grateful. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have to gather together this morning. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. We are gonna read our scripture from John 1 this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law given through Moses, law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Bernard, come share with us. Well, good morning to all of you. It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> the quintessential first sentence. Um, much uh, imitated and much mocked the classic start to some great work. Uh, it was actually first used uh, as the opening sentence of a novel back in 1830, but the phrase itself had already been around uh, for plenty of time before that. Uh, it has been much imitated. Uh, so for example, Madeleine Lengel opens her uh, book, A Wrinkle in Time, with that line. It was a dark and stormy night. But the most famous imitator of all was Snoopy. <laughs> as many of you know, every time he uh, got out his typewriter on top of his kennel, uh, every single work began with, it was a dark and stormy night. So he had no trouble with his first sentence. He did have trouble with the second sentence. And um, <laughs> so often he would resort simply to the end. <laughs> and that would be it. Uh, well, for the last 40 years, there has been a, an annual competition held in honor of the author of that uh, 1830 novel, uh, the uh, Bulwer-Lytton Fiction Contest. And uh, the annual contest is to, quote, write an atrocious opening sentence to the worst novel never written. And uh, I've known of this competition for a while, but I found that just uh, a couple of days ago. It's actually run from out of the English department at San Jose State. Uh, right on our doorstep. Well, uh, so that contest is to write an atrociously bad first sentence, but uh, English has a lot of very good first sentences. Uh, Shakespeare wrote several, so Twelfth Night opens, if music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it, that surfeiting my soul may sicken and die. Or there's Richard III, which opens this way, now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. Some first sentences are very short. Moby Dick opens with a very brief sentence, call me Ishmael. Uh, Scott Peck's uh, book, uh, nonfiction book, The Road Less Traveled, opens with the arresting short statement, life is difficult. Maybe some of you have read that. Some opening sentences are long, Charles Dickens, Tale of Two Cities opens with, uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, where it seems to be a very short phrase, but that sentence actually carries on for an entire paragraph and runs to almost 120 words. Well, for the past month or two, I've been thinking about first sentences, and uh, I usually find that the first sentence of a sermon is uh, probably the hardest sentence to write. Um, I resolved that a couple of months ago by deciding that today I would start by talking about first sentences. Um, 
So a lot hangs on a first sentence. Um, a good first sentence has two important tasks to accomplish. Firstly, it should capture your attention. And here I know I'm up against stiff competition because early on a Sunday morning, your mind might be elsewhere, your mind might be still at home, you might be still in bed, you might be a have been in a rush to get here. So I'm competing to try and get your attention. And I'm competing to get your goodwill. Your goodwill to, so I can capture your attention, and your goodwill so that you're ready to pay attention to the second sentence and the third sentence and keep on listening to what I have to say. Your goodwill so that you won't stop listening before I stop speaking. <laughs> and then secondly, the opening words uh, ideally ought to have something to do with the rest of the sermon or the rest of the novel or the rest of the speech as it may be. It should, as it were, indicate something of what is to come. And here we have a magnificent example in the Gettysburg Address uh, with its famous opening sentence. Fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And that constitutes over 10% of this very short speech, but it's such a powerful speech, such a powerful opening that many commit it to memory. Well, as I've been thinking these last couple of months about first sentences, I've also been thinking about first sentences in the Bible. Some of these are very well known. So the Old Testament opens with these famous words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. And our scripture reading this morning was from John chapter one, the opening words of John's gospel, the prologue, uh, very similar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then there are other first sentences in Scripture that are poorly known, but I think deserve to be much better known, and that's what I hope to show you today. So today I'm beginning a new series on the book of Hebrews, and this book begins with a very long first sentence. And it's so long, that English translations uh, divided up into multiple sentences, three as in NASB or ESV, or four in NIV, or even six sentences in the Christian Standard Bible. So here is the opening sentence of Hebrews as rendered in NIV, which breaks it up into four sentences. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he, he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. That's quite a remarkable opening sentence. Now we often call this the letter to the Hebrews, but that opening sentence is not at all like all the other letters in the New Testament, which tell us about the author and the recipients and where they are located. 
We're not told any of that information here. The last few verses of the book are like a letter, but not this opening sentence. So most recent translations just entitle this book this as Hebrews rather than the letter to Hebrews. And uh, it's actually not best not considered as being a letter, but as being a sermon. And it's written and sent to Christians among whom it would have been read aloud at one of their weekly or regular gatherings. This was also true of the New Testament letters. They would have been first received this way, read aloud to the gathered community. This is also true of the book of Revelation, which among other things is actually a letter. Uh, and at the beginning of Revelation, there's a blessing on, pronounced on the one who reads aloud the work and those who hear, those who listen and receive the word that is read aloud to them. And some of you have been here long enough that you would have heard Michael Reardon recite the entire book of Revelation in 2001 and 2007 when I preached through the book. Uh, some of you have been present when I've organized readings of the entire book in one setting. And it's a profound experience to encounter the book of Revelation that way. And I think it would be a profound experience to encounter Hebrews that way, to hear it as an intact sermon. Now we're familiar with individual verses from Hebrews, but not many people have a sense of the entire work. So think of it as a sermon which is designed to be heard. Now the author, uh, and it would take about 45 minutes to read it, and uh, it would be a wonderful experience. Now the author of this work calls it a word of exhortation. And he states that he has written quite briefly. <laughs> now, if you've read through the entire book or uh, listen to it, uh, that will strike you as odd because it seems anything but brief. Um, and just like a sermon today, in this sermon that is Hebrews, the preacher alternates between exposition and exhortation. He explains and then he applies. And the exposition feeds into the exhortation. And the exhortation is developed from out of the exposition. And over these next four Sundays, I'm going to cover the first block of exposition followed by exhortation. Now, who wrote this sermon and to whom? Well, the King James Version entitles it The Epistle of Paul the Apostle to Hebrews. Um, who wrote it? Well, there's now pretty much unanimous agreement that Paul did not write it. We don't know who did. Uh, there have been a number of various suggestions, but we haven't been told. Nor are we told to whom it is written. And the most common view is written to Christians in Rome in the 60s during the reign of Emperor Nero. So we just have to be content with that. But what we do know is that the author or the preacher is from the community to which he writes. But he has been temporarily separated from them, probably by imprisonment, and he hopes to be restored to them. And meanwhile, he sends them this sermon to encourage them, this word of exhortation, while he continues to be absent from them. And he wants to encourage them to persevere in following Jesus. Now what this means is that he knows the people to whom he writes. He's from their number. He knows them well, he cares deeply for them. He knows their situation and their struggles. And he is therefore well placed to give appropriate words of exhortation, of encouragement. 
Now, his opening sentence is complex, but it's beautifully written, and it befits detailed exposition. So I'm gonna take two weeks to cover it, and I hope during these two weeks to be able to convey to you some of the beauty of this sentence. And as a good first sentence, it introduces some major themes of the entire work. The sentence is entirely about God and about his son. God is the subject of the verbs in the first two verses. The son is the subject of the verbs in the second two verses. The first is, half is about the God who speaks, contrasting two eras of speaking. God has spoken in the distant past, and God has spoken recently. So it's what we're going to look at today. Now, the way that the preacher lays out these first two verses, he makes four points of contrast between these two acts of speaking. So firstly, in the past, formerly he spoke, quote, many times and in various ways, but now it is implied he has spoken in a singular, unique event manner, a one-time event. Secondly, he spoke in the past, but now he has spoken in these last days. Thirdly, formerly he spoke to our ancestors. Now he has spoken to us. And finally, formerly he spoke through the prophets. Now he has spoken by his son or in his son. So God speaks. Why does God speak? Well, his speaking is a gift. It is an act of divine generosity. You see, speaking is relational because it implies a hearer. And the spoken word doesn't work unless it is heard and received. And in speaking, God extends beyond himself. He speaks to one who is other than himself, to someone or something. Now God is inherently relational because God is love. And love assumes relationship. And love has three aspects. There is the lover, the beloved, and the love that flows back and forth between them. <coughs> and ideally, love is reciprocated. The lover loves the beloved, and the beloved returns that love back to the lover. And such is the case within the Godhead, as Augustine laid out long ago. The father loves the son, his beloved. The son loves the father back, and the spirit mediates that love between father and son. It's a community of perfect love. The son is described in John's prologue as being face to face with the father, gazing into the father's face. He's in the closest possible embrace of the father, in the bosom of the father, gazing face to face, communicating love to each other. And I don't think there that there is speech. There's no need for speech. So perfect is their communion. But God, in his generosity, decided to create a world outside of himself to also receive his love and care. And he did so by speech. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God's act of speaking was heard, and it was effective. He spoke, and it was so. We read seven times in Genesis 1. Ten times we read, then God said. So he created an ordered cosmos by his ten words, by his speech. He spoke the world into being. 
Our call to worship was Psalm 29, in which we read seven times about the word of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. Having created, God continued to speak. He formed a human being whom he placed in his garden, a human being capable of hearing and receiving his word. And the Lord God spoke again to this human. And he said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God spoke and his word required a response. It needed to be heard. Now the act of hearing is twofold. First, the words enter the physical ear, but that does not guarantee hearing. As the exasperated spouse or parent says, do you hear me? <laughs> You're not listening. So the spoken word must penetrate the mind and must penetrate the heart, generating a response. And so in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for to listen, to hear, uh, implies both actions and often is best translated as to obey. So God spoke to Adam, who at this point is an undifferentiated human, so male and female together, and God spoke an abundant permission and a single prohibition. And in heeding the prohibition lay Adam's perfect freedom to enjoy the provision. And this is contrary to modern attitude where commandments, negative or positive, limit our human freedom. They restrict our autonomy. They hinder us from being our true authentic self. But in serving the Lord, hearing what he has spoken, we are truly free. But the man and the woman did not listen to the Lord. They did not receive his word. Instead, they listened to other voices. And so God expelled humanity from the garden, and humanity lost its true freedom. But God did not give up speaking. He spoke to Noah, whom we are repeatedly told did all that God commanded him. And so Noah was saved in the ark. God spoke again, this time to Abraham, who, quote, believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Believing the Lord, taking him at his word, listening to him, hearing him, is the appropriate thing to do given his relationship with the Lord. And so God fulfilled his promise of a son. God spoke again, this time to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. But the Israelites were terrified of that voice. And they begged Moses to stand between them and God. And so God spoke to Moses and Moses spoke to the people. Moses functioned as a prophet. Not foretelling what was going to happen, but foretelling the word of the Lord, conveying the Lord's speech to his people. And through the prophet Moses, God spoke to the forefathers of Israel gracious words, words of life. God spoke ten words the Ten Commandments, giving Israel a gift of moral order. He spoke seven words of instructions about the tabernacle, giving Israel the gift of his presence among them. And at the end of his life, Moses urged the Israelites to hear 
and obey God's commandments, to obey his word. And here lay the way to life and prosperity, whereas failure to hear, failure to listen and obey would lead to death and destruction. And that death had already started to happen because Moses was speaking to the children of the generation that came out of Egypt. All that first generation had died in the wilderness for their refusal to hear. And so the parents failed to enter the rest that God had promised. God had spoken. And so our preacher starts his sermon, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. There's a lot of history packed into that statement. God kept on speaking again and again and again to the forefathers of Israel of old. He sent them prophet after prophet as his messenger proclaiming, thus says the Lord. But Israel did not listen. And so finally God expelled Israel from the land just as he had expelled Adam and Eve from the garden. And for the same reason, the failure to listen. And eventually God stopped speaking. Malachi was the last prophet. And for over 400 years, he was silent. But the latter prophets had left a message of hope for the future, that there would be a new age, that God would speak again and his people would listen. And so the preacher writes that God spoke one more time. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The last days arrived and God spoke again. He didn't speak commandments, he spoke a person. Not just any person, but the one and only who is in the category of son. Now God's action here is illuminated by a parable that Jesus told, the parable of the wicked tenants that's given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A landowner who had rented out his well-equipped vineyard sent his servants to collect his share of the harvest. But the wicked tenants built, killed each servant in turn, and the owner said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Perhaps they will listen. And so as a supreme act of love for a people that have persistently refused to listen, God spoke one more time, sending his best beloved into the world. Now, the prologue of John's gospel, part of which we heard as our scripture reading, carefully distinguishes two realms, the realm that already was before the beginning and the realm that came to be after the beginning started. Verses one and two, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Four times we hear there that at the moment of the beginning, the word was already there with God. So the word is on the side of God in being eternal, preexistent, without beginning. Everything else, meanwhile, had a beginning. Everything else came to be, as stated three times in verse three. Through him, all things came to be. 
Without him, nothing came to be that has come to be. So given the strong distinction between the realm of the was and the realm of the what came to be, it is then a great surprise to read in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The son left the realm of the eternal was and entered into the finite world of the came to be. The son humbled himself. He became like us. He entered into our human story. He became human like us because existing humanity had all failed to be truly human. Humanity had failed because it failed to listen. It failed to hear what God had spoken. In particular, Israel had failed to be the new humanity that God had redeemed from Egypt. It had failed to listen. God had given them the gift of order. He had bought, redeemed them from bondage and slavery. He had spoken again and again and again. And Israel kept failing to hear. And now God has spoken one more time. At the transfiguration, God spoke to the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were with Jesus. This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Again, God's speech requires a listening response. So what is our listening response to what God has spoken in his son? How do we listen to Jesus? When calling his disciples, Jesus said to them, follow me. God has spoken to us. This initially was to the Jews of the early first century, but not many listened, not many followed, especially when Jesus took the path to the cross. The disciples did hear and they did follow, but they didn't really understand, especially when Jesus took the path to the cross. And it would take the gift of the Spirit on Pentecost to open ears and enable understanding, including why Jesus took the path of the cross. And many did hear, Jews first and then Gentiles. In the context of Hebrews, the us is the preacher and his audience who have responded in faith. They've responded in faith to what they have heard from those who had heard earlier. They're in the second generation of followers of Jesus. And then as we today read Hebrews, the us includes all who have heard God speak in his son. And we respond by following Jesus. God spoke in the past by the prophets. He has spoken in these last days by his son. And the comparison between these two acts of speaking is a major feature of Hebrews. The entire book, the entire sermon is saturated with Israel's scriptures, what we generally call the Old Testament, what God has spoken in the past to the ancestors. And throughout his sermon, the author quotes from the old, but then shows how it is fulfilled in Jesus, indeed surpassed by Jesus. 
Now, how do we put the two halves of the Bible together? How do we put these two halves of speaking together? There is both continuity and discontinuity. But where to draw that line between continuity and discontinuity continues to be a major issue in biblical hermeneutics, in biblical interpretation. But for many readers, this is a moot point because they pay no attention to the old at all, other than perhaps to mine it for moral lessons. But we are a church that does pay considerable attention to the old and to how to read the two halves together. So let me make uh, four quick observations on how we fit the two halves together. Firstly, the former word was good, but the new word is better. This is against some who say, well, the former word was bad, but what we have now is good. Both are good, but the new is better. Secondly, to understand the present word, we have to understand the former word, what God spoke to Israel. This is part of why we pay attention to the old, is so that we can better understand the new. And thirdly, we now have to read the former word with an awareness of the present word. We know where the story is going. We know how God has spoken since then. And finally, we can't put aside the present word and return back to the former word. But it seems that some of those to whom this author sent this sermon were tempted to do exactly that to put aside this word that God has spoken in his son and go back to the old. They were in danger of letting go of Jesus. Why might they let go? Well, life following Jesus was hard. They were suffering. Some had already fallen away, denying Christ. But the greatest danger was not outright rejection, not outright apostasy, just saying one day, I'm not gonna follow Jesus. The greatest danger was a gradual drifting away from Jesus, a gradual ceasing to listen to what God has spoken in his son. So what does the preacher have to say to those who are in danger of ceasing to listen? Well, his response was to send them this word of exhortation. And the first exhortation comes at the beginning of chapter two. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Now, Hebrews is a dense, theologically rich sermon, but it has a straightforward purpose that I hope you will remember again and again throughout this whole series as the preacher puts Christ before his audience. I've chosen this as my sermon the title for this series, Christ Before Us. And here I intend a double meaning. In the exposition sections, the preacher expounds the superiority of Christ Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. He presents Jesus to them. And then in the exhortation sections, he urges them to fix their gaze on Jesus to have Christ before them in their attention. And then secondly, he also reminds them that Jesus has faithfully finished the course. He heard God's word, he was obedient to it. That was shown in the temptation. 
Christ is before them in the journey of life. And in contrast to ancient Israel, he was faithful to God's word, he completed the journey, and has entered into God's rest. He has taken his seat at God's right hand, having finished his work. And Jesus is described as being the author and perfecter of faith, not of our faith, as it's often translated, but of faith itself. He has perfectly modeled faithfulness doing what Adam and Israel both failed to do, he has heard God and been faithful. And as such, he is our pioneer. He is our forerunner. He is our elder brother who has gone ahead. He is before us in the sense that we follow him. Now, Hebrews can be an intimidating book. It suffers relative neglect compared to Paul's letters, which seem a bit easier. And it's never been preached at PVCC in our 37 years. Uh, and for uh, a dozen years or so, I've been determined to preach it. So here we go. Uh, and the book's message is one that we need to hear today. And I hope as we work through that it won't seem quite an intimidating book, that you'll understand, come to understand the simple premise of the book. Because over these next few years, we will pay attention to Jesus. And I hope we will see Christ before us. So Hebrews is relevant today. And many of us sadly know people who are once passionate about Jesus, but have slowly drifted away from him until finally they are no longer tethered to Jesus. Tethered to Jesus who is our anchor. And they've lost their moorings. So Hebrews is on the one hand a book about the old and the new, about God speaking in the past to Israel and is speaking in these last days in his son. But it is supremely a book about Jesus. Yes, it is saturated with Israel's scriptures, but even more, it is saturated with Jesus. And we are invited again and again to consider Jesus. We are mimetic creatures, we imitate. We imitate others, especially those whom we look at. And this quickly becomes evident in young babies looking at their mothers. This is widespread in social media. We become like what we look at. We imitate what we pay attention to. And Hebrews directs our attention to Jesus, urges us to pay attention to Jesus so that we will imitate Jesus by faithfully following him who has gone before us into God's presence. And we listen well to what God has spoken in his son when we gaze at Jesus and follow him. We listen by seeing and following. Now we gather together regularly to pay attention to Jesus as we sing, as we hear the scriptures, we pray. Later on in Hebrews, there'll be this warning not to neglect meeting together. We rejoice that we can be back in person meeting. Next week, we will have uh, Connection Sunday. Uh, over two Sundays, and opportunities to meet together, to connect together, to encourage one another. So that we cultivate our passion for Jesus 
so that we remain firmly attached to him, firmly attached to our mooring, to our anchor, so that we don't drift away from Jesus. Paul writes to the Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. God who spoke light. He spoke light into the world in the beginning. He spoke light again into the world in Jesus. And he has spoken light into our darkness through his spirit. God has spoken to us in his son. Let us pay most careful attention to what we have heard. Let us pay attention to Jesus. This is what Hebrews is about. Amen. Well, I close with the benediction that is given at the end of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.